according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Matthew 28. From there, we will go to Luke 24, where the Great Commission will be followed by the Great something else. I teased you with a week ago. Has it been a week? Two weeks? Two weeks. No, one week. We were here last week. Weren't we? Okay. I thought I was here last week. Okay. I was out of town on Sunday, but I did not miss a Wednesday. We're just going. Appreciate your prayers. My Saturday, Sunday quick trip ended up being a Saturday, Sunday, Monday longer trip because flights were canceled and snow and ice all over. Kansas City and whatnot. So, um, anyway, appreciate the prayers on that. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is commonly referred to as the Great Commission, even though the word great doesn't appear anywhere in there, commission doesn't appear anywhere in there. Uh, We understand it for what it is, and we accept it for what it is. This is the Great Commission. This is the prime imperative for the dispensation of the church. This is uh, the disciple-maker imperative. It is our imperative. It does not apply to the tribulation or the millennium that follows. It is the church imperative to make disciples. And uh, I'm going to pick right up where we left off with the two activities that define the disciple-maker imperative here in just a moment. Before we do, though, let's take time for silent prayer to humble ourselves under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the privilege that we have to assemble together. And Father, we thank you that we can be here under an imperative. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Holy Spirit communicates to the local churches. And so, Father, we are under that imperative while we study additional imperatives. And I pray that we would be here to listen. We would be here to learn. We would be here to grow. And uh, not simply just to have reinforced what we already think it says. Father, let us with fresh eyes uh, see what it really says, and uh, and Father, submit to it accordingly. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, we are studying the imperative itself, which, there it is, the imperative itself is main point three. We can just pretty quickly, I think, run through these. The setting for this under main point one is the mountain in Galilee. It's the location for this event. Uh, the, the setting for this event, I think, helps us to differentiate between Matthew 28 and Luke 24. I do not believe it's appropriate to, to smash those two uh, uh, passages together. Uh, the mountain setting for this, uh, point two, Jesus drew near to the wavering worshipers and bestowed upon them the disciple-maker imperative. The issue is not they're wavering. The issue is how do you solve the wavering by drawing closer to Christ and by listening to what he commands. And uh, we gave you some points of study related there as well. The disciple-maker imperative exists as a reflection of Jesus by present authority. That this great commission cannot be applied in the tribulation, cannot be applied in the millennium. This uh, by present reality is a heaven and earth setting And only the bride of Christ with a heaven and earth ministry can fulfill the Great Commission. The disciple-maker imperative exists as a reflection of Jesus Christ by present authority. The lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, conclusion is vital to understand this. Tribulational saints cannot fulfill a commission that requires a lo, I am with you always promise. Because tribulational saints do not have Jesus in them, with them, serving, walking alongside with them. Tribulational martyrs, tribulational saints are enduring to the end when he will come. Tribulational uh, saints are 
praying fervently, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Tribulational saints are born-again Jews, born-again Gentiles, are not baptized into union in Christ Jesus as you and I are. The lo, I am with you always is vital, along with the all heaven, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus Christ issues this commission with a by-present reality, and he's issuing it to born-again believers who operate with a by-present reality. And we spent the time to walk through that. What does it mean to be by-present? We better start embracing that because we are by-present. We're physically here on this earth, but we are spiritually seated in the right hand of Jesus Christ. We are spiritually in the Holy of Holies, not the earthly replica, the reality in heaven. We need to operate that way on a by-present basis. The church stewardship operates via a by-present reality. What we bind on earth has already been bound in heaven. What we loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven. If we forgive the sins of any, they've already been forgiven. If we retain the sins of any, they've already been retained. Local churches operate on a by-present reality. Jesus Christ walks in the midst of this lampstand. He holds the star in his right hand. Jesus is the head of the church. See, this by-present reality is critical. Churches often give it lip service, but they don't believe it. They don't run their church like Jesus Christ is head of the church. They run their church like they're a corporation. Different activities there. All right. The disciple-maker imperative exists for the duration of this age. It is only a church-age commission, like communion. Communion is not for the tribulation. It's not for the millennium. Communion ends at the rapture. The ritual we have of bread and wine ends at the rapture. Communion is only for the bride. The Great Commission is only for the bride. Because conditional circumstances will be entirely different once his kingdom actually does come. As I say, that lo, I'm with you always, that can't apply to tribulational saints. They don't have the permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit. They don't have the, the baptism in the union with Jesus Christ like you and I do. Which brings us to the imperative itself under main point three. The imperative itself. And as we saw already a week ago, the imperative is not go. Go is an aorist participle. It's not even a present participle. It's not even a a definitive activity that defines what the Great Commission actually is, like the two participles that follow. Understand this. What we have are three participles and an imperative. The go, the baptizing, and the teaching are all the participles. The make disciples is the imperative. And uh, and you see them right there in uh, verses 19 and 20. The main imperative is make disciples. The only imperative is make disciples. Unless you want to see the the low or the behold in verse 20. What do you have there? Do you have a low or do you have a behold? Depends on what English text you're reading. But lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Or behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If you really want to be buggy about it, that's an imperative too. Lo or behold, now see this, behold this. Don't ever lose track of this, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So, um, go, the imperative is not go. The aorist participle of poor uo, to go, and all the places where we have aorist participles of poor uo, we spent the time on last week working our way through there. It's, ex- it's an expression, it's an idiom, and we would not take uh, any of those passages uh, on an imperatival basis. It's the verb that follows is the verb that is expected to be commanded. Point B, the disciple-maker imperative is an aorist imperative. It's not a present imperative. It is an aorist imperative, and that too is vital. That too is absolutely vital. It's not a continuous action in present time. It's not an all-day, everyday activity as present imperatives are. All right, so um, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, your ability to relax, your ability to uh, recognize that making disciples is uh, iterative, there will be occasions, there will be occasions, there will be occasions, but it's not always on. You're not constantly giving the gospel to people. You're not constantly um, urging non-disciples to abide in the word of God. 
All right? There are other things that we do in addition to making disciples. It's not a present imperative. It is an aorist imperative. So think punctiliar, think points. As, they, uh, as those doors open, as those occasions present themselves, you make disciples. All right, the verb mathetuo, uh, only used four times, and uh, only in this case is it causative. The, uh, the other uses are simply indicative. They had become disciples. They had become disciples. Matthew 13, 52, 27, 57, 28, 19, and Acts 14, 21. Point C, the disciple-maker imperative is a global mission to all the nations. It is a global mission. The disciple-maker imperative is a global mission. We had some indications of that earlier in the ministry of Jesus Christ when he assured the Samaritan woman that an hour is coming and now is. He assured the Samaritan woman that an hour is coming. Okay, Pay attention when he says an hour is coming and now is, and pay attention when he leaves off the and now is. If he just says an hour is coming. Okay. But when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem, all right, there is a coming age, that, and we know it now as the church age, there is a coming stewardship or dispensation, which is not going to be located in a holy city. It's not going to be located in a, within a particular land grant. That it's going to be global. And that all believers, whether they're Americans or Ukrainians or Filipinos or Jews or Gentiles or whatever they are, that by faith in Christ, they are baptized into union with Jesus Christ. They become part of the bride, at which point they are neither Jew nor Gentile, but a new man, a new creation in Christ, a heavenly citizenship. And so the disciple-maker imperative is a global mission to all the nations. This, by the way, is the one point of commonality between the Matthew 28 passage and the Luke um, 24 message. They're not the same message. I think the Luke 24 message is a follow-up to the Matthew 28 message. And uh, we'll see that when we end the Great Commission message and we move on to the great message from Luke 24 that I've given a title to. I just haven't... I'm I'm teasing you with it at the moment. You'll, You'll get it when you get it. All right. Now, there are two activities which define the disciple maker imperative. There are two activities that define the disciple-maker activity uh, imperative. And these are the activities that are given in the text represented by the present participles that we find here. The present participles that follow the imperative. Not the aorist participle that preceded the imperative. All right? They are participles, but they're different. They're not aorist participles, they're present participles. And they follow the aorist imperative. Okay? Not to, not to be all buggy about the grammar, but I think you need to. I think the syntax of this is, is, is vital. The go is an aorist imperative that simply idiomatically sets the table for the imperative that follows. They're not going to make disciples of all the nations sitting on top of Mount Tabor or whatever mountain it is. All right? Clearly, they're going to have to go. But going is incidental. All right? It's incidental to the imperative to make disciples of all the nations. The two activities that follow, though, are definitive. They define how you make the disciples. Okay? He doesn't say make disciples of all the nations um, uh, blowing their nose and and, uh, hugging them. What does he say to do to make disciples? He defines how to do it. Baptizing and teaching. Baptizing and teaching gives you the how. How do I make disciples? And if you're not baptizing them and teaching them, you're not making disciples. There's a lot of other things that are called discipleship in our pop culture of churchianity that are not discipleship because they're not baptizing and teaching. The prime activities are baptizing them and teaching them. Baptizing them and teaching them. And we have to understand what baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is about. And is it, is it just simply a water ritual, one and done? Okay, check that off the list. Or is there the, the true sense of baptizo in the sense of identifying them with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Identifying them with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit so that they do have the full doctrine when they are dunked 
Okay? Identifying them with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So let's break it down. First of all, the first activity is to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Clearly, this is the one that is associated with evangelism. This is the one that's associated with causing them to identify with the body of Christ. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, a perishing one in Adam cannot be a disciple, so evangelism must be step number one in the disciple-maker imperative. All right? If they are um, an unbeliever, they need the gospel. If they're an Old Testament believer, they need to identify with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They need to identify with the finished work of Jesus Christ. Both then would uh, engage in a baptism ritual. A pagan unbeliever that was never saved to begin with will respond to the gospel, place their faith in Jesus Christ, and then identify with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through the ritual of water baptism. Likewise, an Old Testament believer who's already saved under the Old Testament gospel is required to identify with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the reality of the crucified and risen Savior. Identifying with the person of Jesus Christ, the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And it is required that he be baptized What was necessary for the Apostle Paul after the Damascus Road experience? He had to identify with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He had to be baptized. He had to publicly confess his identification with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right. So step number one is baptizing. Now, fortunately for you and I today, in the Great Commission, we no longer are ever going to encounter an Old Testament believer. (laughs) right. This is that's limited to just that generation. Only the generation that was alive at the time Christ was crucified. Please understand what I'm saying. Okay? For folks that were saved as Old Testament believers before Christ died on the cross, it is necessary for them to identify with Christ to be ushered into the bride. Otherwise, if they fail to identify with the bride, if they fail to... If they, if they die thinking that the Messiah is still coming, and if they die thinking, you know, trust as Old Testament believers, rejecting what Christ did on the cross, they're never going to be ushered into the bride. We want to be clear on that. So that's why we see baptizing them and teaching them here. It had the application that it had in that day and age, and it has the application it has in our day and age. It will always have the application that it has reaching forward to the, to the rapture of the church. Um, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is a way to say that, you know what, the unbeliever needs to get saved. To make a disciple, if the person is an unbeliever, step number one is get them saved. Preach the gospel. Cause them to identify with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptize them. All right? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's step number one. But it's not the only step. This is why it's so tragic, the approaches to discipleship, they just limit it to you get them saved, they get somebody saved, they get somebody saved, they get somebody saved, as if all we're doing is just a multi-level marketing thing of, of just bringing people in. It's more than that. Because the definition of a disciple is not a saved one. A, sa- a disciple is someone that's abiding in the Word of God. All right? We need to understand that. The, um, and so for, for this side trip here, well, I'll get to it. Um, abiding in the Word of God must be step number two in the disciple-maker imperative. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. You see, faith in Christ results in eternal life, but it does not produce a disciple. You can produce a baby, a babe in Christ, when you give them the gospel but you have not produced a disciple if you stop the process with evangelism. All you've done is brought a baby into the world. You've not produced a disciple. You've not made a disciple. Abiding in the Word of God must be step number two in the disciple-maker imperative. And, And there could be years that pass in between. There could be decades that pass in between. I meet people all the time that got saved years ago, and they've never abided in the Word of God yet. 
And, and what's their status? You know? Where's their mindset? Where's their thinking? They are so conformed to this age. Well, of course they're conformed to this age. They've never been transformed by the renewing of their mind. What do you expect? Their thinking is just as worldly as the unbelievers' thinking. Pathetic. Tragic. All right, John 8, 31. So teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. You know, I mean, as we walk this world, remember we're bilocational, as our Savior is. We're spiritually seated in the heavenly places in Christ, but as we're walking this world, we need to have our eyes peeled to look under the fields and see that they're white for the harvest, sure. But more than that, we need to find the other um, people positionally in Christ that, uh, that aren't disciples. They're saved, but they're not disciples. All right, John eight thirty one. Join me there. Let's just turn back to John chapter 8 and uh, take a look at this. Because in verse 30, it's clear, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. And so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. You see that? In John 8, you got verse 30 and you got verse 31. And there was particular messages leading up to this, leading up to verse 30. And there was a lot of hostility in all this. You know, it's, it's amazing. And you're speaking the word of God and people are getting mad. Well, all right. <laughs> Don't get mad at me. Not my word. Um, and then, but some, many even, many came to believe in him. Now, it's starting in verse 31, he has a particular message just to them. The others are still listening, but they're just as hostile and just as mad and worse, right? But he focuses specifically to those who had responded by faith. He said, all right, you're a believer now, but believing is not sufficient. Sufficient for eternal life, yes, but not for discipleship. So, he was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. The problem is, is you can get saved and not abide in the word of God. It says, if, if you continue in my word, meno, abide, remain, dwell. Don't just visit it occasionally. Don't just pop in every now and then. Okay? I returned Monday from Kansas City. It's the third time in my life I've ever been to Kansas City. Uh, I don't dwell there. (laughs) I don't abide there. I don't remain there. A place you've been to three times in your life doesn't qualify for meno. Okay? When you crack your Bible open two or three times over 20 years just to check it out every so often because your life's a wreck and you figure, well, it couldn't hurt. Let's see if the Bible has any, any wisdom. You know, you're not a disciple. You have to live in the Word of God to be a disciple. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. See, there's, there is a positional freedom that comes by being saved, but not an experiential freedom. An experiential freedom requires you to be abiding in the Word of God. The position, don't confuse the positional freedom with the experiential freedom. He's talking to believers here, and they're not yet free. They're saved, but they're not yet free. He's speaking to those who had believed him, promising them conditions upon which they will be free. Disciples are free. Non-disciples are not free. Not experientially. So if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. You see, when, when somebody gets saved, they have new life. They have a, they're provided a new nature. But they have to grow in that new nature. They have to grow in that new life. That new nature, that new life is baby that needs to grow. It needs to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The thinking needs to be renewed transformed otherwise 
They just simply are conformed to this age. And there's a sadness in that. Now, abiding in God must be step number two in the disciple-maker imperative. Now, specifically, specifically to make a disciple now, baptizing them and teaching them, but teaching them what? Teaching them what? The whole counsel of God's Word? Teaching them the minor prophets? Teaching them the Pentateuch? Teaching them what? What is the content of doctrine that you want to ground a brand new baby believer in, whereby once they have been grounded in that field of doctrine, they are a disciple? All right? So that they are a disciple. And once they are a disciple, then they're like you. You are a disciple. I am a disciple. And that not only are they a disciple, but they can also be a disciple maker once they are a disciple. Okay? And I believe the content is the content of the upper room discourse. All that I commanded you. Teaching them to observe, to keep, to guard, to observe all that I commanded you. Well, when was that? Is he talking about everything from baptism at the River Jordan to the Ascension? Because that includes a lot. That includes Sermon on the Mount. That includes um, uh, the, the, the parables of the kingdom. That includes, I mean, every message he ever taught for three and a half years. Is that what he's talking about? Because quite a bit of that was for Israel. The bulk of that was for Israel. Or do we have a more limited scope here? Is it related to the upper room discourse? Is it related to John 13 through 17? And is there a body of teaching that is more focused and finite? That is the content of the baptizing them and teaching them participles here for disciple making. Is it necessary to teach Micah and Zephaniah and, and, and Song of Solomon? to make a disciple. Okay? Understand what I'm saying here, okay? Relax. I'm not saying don't teach whole counsel. Yes, teach whole counsel. But the people that get whole counsel are disciples. What do they need first? What is their basics? What is their grounding? What is their, what is their package that then equips them as a disciple to then take in the whole counsel from Genesis to Revelation? Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Paul says, I do not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God's word. I do not shrink from declaring to you anything that is profitable. Yes, it's line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. But where do you start? Where do you start? What do you ground them in? I think, I think it's the upper room discourse. I think the best doctrine of basics for the church is John 13 through 17. Take them through the things that he taught his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed after Judas walks out. After Judas walks out. But even, even before Judas walks out, foot washing, start there. Start in the upper room when Jesus is, is on that night in which he's betrayed. That's the teaching them all that I commanded you. That's the night he started giving them commands. He says, a new command I give to you. So start there with the upper room discourse. I believe the fulfillment of the second of the of the second present participle. The first participle means I'm giving them the gospel, I'm getting them saved, I'm baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's step number one. But then step number two, I'm taking them through the upper room discourse, a brand new believer through the upper room discourse, so that they're oriented to the church age. They're oriented to where they are in the body of Christ. So they can be a disciple for the remainder of the church age. I'll show you what I mean here. Let's look at, um, again, I would point out, uh, abiding in my word, you will be my disciples, truly, you will be my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, okay? Freedom in the truth. So, John chapter 13, what are we looking at? As we work our way through this, and I would encourage you, 
Um, it's all on the website. You've got the printed notes are on the website, MP3 materials on the website. Everything you need to study John 13 through 17 is on the website. What is the content that's taught here in John 13 through 17? Uh, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come forth from God, he was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, he girded himself. And he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Okay? What's the first thing a brand new baby believer needs to learn? Foot washing. Experiential cleansing. He needs to learn how to confess his sins. He doesn't need a bath all over again. He's had a bath. He is positionally cleansed. He's positionally forgiven. He's positionally clean. He's saved. But he needs to learn the confession process. He needs to learn 1 John 1 9. He needs to learn rebound. He needs to learn how to get back in fellowship. Why did Jesus not teach foot washing three years ago? He's been walking with these guys three and a half years. <laughs> Why did he not teach foot washing? Right after the, the temptation in the wilderness. He comes back from the temptation in the wilderness and goes up and delivers the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? There's a reason why he taught what he taught in the order that he taught. There's a reason why the first half of his ministry is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's a reason why he stops preaching the coming kingdom. He stops preaching the kingdom at hand. There's a reason why halfway through his ministry he starts preparing his disciples the Son of Man will be betrayed, delivered into the hands of sinners. He starts preparing his disciples for the cross. The order for this life of Christ ministry is critical. And we've been seeing it now for 10 years in this Wednesday morning class. But the night in which he's betrayed, they go to the upper room and he starts to give them doctrine that pertains to the coming church. Things that they're not going to understand until the Holy Spirit comes. Including the Holy Spirit's coming. (laughs) He gives that to them on the night he's betrayed. He gives that to them in the upper room discourse. What I call the upper room and walk to the garden discourse. And their heads are spinning. All right. So, first thing, man, He says, um, when he had washed their feet, verse 12, and taken his garments, reclined on the table again, he said, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher. Now, why, why is he stressing teacher here all of a sudden? Did he make a big deal out of that prior to John 13? Did he insist on being called rabbi? No. But this teacher relationship is critical because it relates to the disciple relationship. A teacher has disciples. This is discipleship material. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. He has given them this example. And in the Great Commission, he says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I think teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. In 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 the Sermon on the Mount, was there anything that he said there? Observe this, observe this. I gave you an example here. Do this. He gave them a whole string of Beatitudes, but he never said observe this, do this, this is part of the... It was not a... The, the, the Sermon on the Mount is not a part of the Great Commission. Upper Room Discourse is. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. He commanded them to do this. Imitate me. All right. For truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one sent greater than the one who sent him. They're sent ones after the Great Commission. They are sent ones to go make disciples. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And then, uh, of course, he goes on to say, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that Scripture may be fulfilled. See, there's there's an unbeliever in their midst. 
<clears throat> the Great Commission is only for believers. The church age is only for believers. All right. <clears throat> Truly I say to you, he who receives... Verse 20 now of John 13, 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. You see the connection here with this and the Great Commission? Go and make disciples of all nations. Lo, I am with you always. He who receives you receives me. I believe the content, this is, this is so clear to me. I hope it's clear to you also. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you is precisely referencing the night in which he was betrayed. That's when he starts giving them the commands to love one another, to wash feet. All right. One of you will betray me. We get down to that. And uh, after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately. It was night. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. He's got a whole lot more teaching to teach. And what do they get? What's the content of John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17? It's church age content. It's not for Israel. It's not for the tribulation. It's not for the millennium. It's for the bride of Christ. And their heads are spinning through all of this. They're not equipped to deal with this yet, but they will. They will. All right. And if God is glorified in him, God will glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. This is the immediate glory of the church age. We taught that doctrine. Immediate glory in Christ. Understand in Christ is a church age doctrine for positional truth. And here we have it. God is glorified in him. This this is an in Christ positional truth reality in John 13, 32. A new commandment I give to you. The Great Commission says, teaching them to observe all that I command you. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. What are we commanded to do? Make disciples. That's why these chapters are key. Teaching the upper room discourse to a brand new believer just saved in Christ is the best thing you can do to put them on a solid footing for spending the rest of their life as disciples. Teach them how to confess their sins with foot washing. Teach them how to love one another. Teach them how to glorify God day by day in their walk. <clears throat> you know, it's remarkable. When, you skim, when, when, when your eyes just glance across the pages here, and you see most of it's red, right? But when it's not red, what do you see? In 1336, you see Peter all confused, asking questions. In 14.5, you see Thomas all confused, asking questions. In 14.8, you see Philip all confused, asking questions. In 14.22, I mean, this is easy. Just, just glance your eyes across the page and look for the, the, the black ink. Look for the verses that aren't read. And what do you see? You see confused disciples. <laughs> okay? Every time. Peter's confused. Philip's confused. Thomas confused. Judas, the other one, the, the good one, the, 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 <laughs> the not Iscariot one, said to him, Lord, what, you know, what's going on? What has happened? That you're going to disclose yourself to us, not the cosmos, not the world. Okay? And you talk about those that he saved, and then there's the cosmos. And anyway, the way John uses cosmos is important. And in all of these things, he's answering their questions, and he's saying, You don't understand now, you will later. Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later, he assures Peter. And. Um, what you don't understand now, you're going to understand later. He says, I'm going to send you a helper. He's going to open your minds to understand all this. All right. Um, so, what are we teaching uh, in our discipleship? From John 13, we're teaching confession, and we're teaching immediate glory, right? Immediate glory. Uh, we're teaching love one another. 
for the immediate glory of God the Father in Christ. Okay? Chapter 14, we're teaching rapture. I believe you ought to teach the rapture to a brand new baby believer. If they just got saved this morning, then before they go to sleep tonight, you better teach them rebound. And if you don't have time to teach them rapture on the first day they're saved, give them to them on the second day. Give it to them on the third day. Give it to them, you know, certainly in very short order. As a brand new believer, why? Because day by day by day, they need to understand that they weren't promised this day. Day by day by day, we could be hearing that trumpet. Day by day by day, we're waking up expecting, surprised that we woke up. Okay? Surprised that the trumpet didn't sound while we were sleeping. Oh, I got one more day to glorify Christ. Day by day by day. John 14, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. This is basic doctrine. A brand new believer ought to have a rapture focus. Now, this world is not what he's living for. It might be what he used to live for as an unbeliever. Ephesians 2 says that's what he used to live for as an unbeliever, but he now he has to learn Christ. And learning Christ means I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also. When I come, I will receive you again to myself. Rapture is a basic doctrine. Of course, Thomas is like, what? What's this? <laughs> All right. And then uh, seeing the Father. The greater works. Having a prayer ministry, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in me. He starts teaching this, uh, this uh, here with the Father. The promise of the coming Spirit, I will not leave you as orphans. The promise of the Spirit is coming upon you. All of this doctrine, you know, a brand new believer, does he know that the Holy Spirit's inside of him? Well, how's he going to know that until you teach him? He knows he has eternal life. He knows the sins are forgiven. He knows he's not going to go to hell when he dies. Start teaching him what else happened that moment he got saved. There's a whole package of 39 things, 53 things, 83 things. Pastor John Eichmann now I think is up to 83 things that happen in your portfolio of assets as a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. Start teaching him those things. Specifically here in basics, we're told that the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has that the moment he's saved. Teach him about it. And you probably already have if you're teaching them foot washing and fellowship and confession. But the filling of the Holy Spirit? All right. Again, we have commandments. In that day you will know that I am in my Father. I'm reading from 1420 now. He who has my commandments and keeps them, guards them, observes them. Here's more verbal linkage between the upper room discourse and the Great Commission. Because Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Okay? Tereo is to keep, to guard, to observe. Verse 21 here of John 14 says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, observes them. Sure, you got the doctrine. Are you living it? Okay? You're going to make disciples. That's the one who loves me and who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Again, Judas not a scary. This is all bizarre stuff. Lord, where's, where's all this? Is any of this coming from the Old Testament? None of this is coming from the Old Testament. This is all brand new mystery doctrine for the church. It's given here in a, in a, by the Lord. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. They're not going to understand a lick of it until the day of Pentecost. All right? Or possibly, prior to Pentecost, we're going to see in uh, Luke 24, he opens their minds to understand the Scriptures. He gives them the capacity to apprehend church-age reality. And that's actually before his ascension, before Pentecost. Now, um, loving me, keeping my word, uh, my Father will love him, we will come and make our abode with him. Not only do we abide, that's, that's John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. We have the filling of the Holy Spirit when we're in fellowship, but we have the filling of the Father and the filling of the Son when we are abiding in his word. 
This is the fellowship we have with the Father and with His Son, promised to us in 1 John. Okay? But Jesus taught it first. Jesus taught it before John wrote it in 1 John. And he who does not love me does not keep my words. The word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. All right, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. These things. He's talking about the upper room discourse. These things. He's not talking about, remember way back when when we were walking on water? Remember way back when when I fed the 5,000? Remember way back when? No, it's these things. The urgency of this night, the upper room discourse on the night in which he's betrayed. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom my Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. This is the content, the body of truth contained in the Great Commission, contained in this night in which he is betrayed, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, referring back to this night in which he is betrayed. And the Holy Spirit will make sense of these things. They're not equipped to deal with it now. They're Old Testament believers. How would an Old Testament believer operate in a New Testament reality? Well, it requires the Holy Spirit, among other things. All right. Um, Conflict. Something else you want to teach a brand new believer? Look at the end of chapter 14. The ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. Um, You know, do you wait till day, do you wait till they've been saved a year before you start teaching them angelic conflict? When do you start teaching them about the adversary? I think it's day one. The young men are the ones that have to overcome. The young men, are, you have the, the children, little children, young men, fathers, that progression there in 1 John. You know, once they're saved, understand that they've been delivered from the domain of darkness and that adversary is out to get them. He has nothing in me. All right, I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. John 15, it's church age passage. John 15, abiding in Christ, bearing fruit, pleasing the Father. By this, my Father is my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. Remember? The whole thing started with the glory in, back in chapter 13. Immediate glory. You and I walk in immediate glory. Israel was living for thousands and thousands of years, waiting for a coming glory. Okay? The glory departed and never came back. Israel was waiting for their Messiah, waiting for glory to return. We have glory day by day by day, every day. It is glory just to walk with Him. It is glory. We glorify the Father daily. We're not waiting for a future glory. We have a daily glory because we're by present on earth and in heaven. All right. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Again, you think this passage has something to do with discipleship? (laughs) What's the Great Commission about? Make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Teaching them. Get them saved, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then get them grounded in the upper room discourse. You got a brand new believer. I don't care if he was just saved yesterday or a week ago or a month ago. If very shortly after their salvation, you have them very solid on the upper room discourse, they're, they're a disciple. They'll be taught how to abide in Christ, how to abide in the Word of God. And they can spend the rest of their life on this earth abiding in the Word of God as a disciple. Same as you, same as me. All right. Uh, loving one another, part of the basics a brand new disciple needs. Relationship to the world. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before you. Again, angelic conflict, which we saw in chapter 14. Again, the promise of the helper. Um, these things I have spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. Persecution that will then take place. Again, the promise of the Holy Spirit. How many times has he promised this Holy Spirit? Um... It is to your advantage that I go away. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Understand the upper room discourse is not the final word of the church age. 
The Upper Room Discourse is only the inaugural address. You have the rest of the New Testament. You've got the epistles that are going to get written after the day of Pentecost. But He, the Spirit of Truth, when He comes, He will guide you to all the truth. And there is uh, church-age doctrine. All right. Um, more prayer promises. More going to the Father in prayer. The overcoming promise in verse 33 of John 16. Notice in verse 33, an hour is coming and has already come. For you to be scattered, each to his own home, to leave me alone, and yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. These are realities that apply also not just to him on this night, but also to the church. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. Take courage, I have overcome the world. You think that's related to church-age disciples? Of course it is. Who is the overcomer? Us, in Christ. This is the victory, our faith. So then the high priestly prayer. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. This is immediate glory for the church age. Verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. All right. Anyway, we've got the prayers. It's not just for the 12. It's not just for the apostolic generation. Key that we understand that. Some people try to limit the Upper Room Discourse of the Great Commission to only the generation of the apostles. And uh, it's not just for the apostles. Verse 9 of chapter 17 makes that clear. I ask on their behalf, not on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and not just those whom you have given me, but those that will hear through their teaching as well. Okay? And... um, down to verse 20 you see this i do not ask on behalf of these alone but for those also who believe in me through their word so this this whole upper room discourse is not just for the disciples not just the original 12 apostles of the lamb and i include matthias in this all right it's, this this content is not just apostolic it's for those that get saved through apostolic preaching in other words church age saints those who become disciples through the disciple-maker imperative. Those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The upper room discourse and this high priestly prayer is all about the church age. It's about being one in Christ. It has no application in the tribulation. It has no application in the millennium. Once the rapture brings the bride to a conclusion, this reality is never again going to be manifest. The first person who gets saved after the rapture, you know, whether it's the day after, the, the week after, the, the split second after, okay? <laughs> well, I mean, if, what if somebody watches the dead in Christ rise and then the, we get snatched up and they see all that? And what if they then remember back to a gospel message they'd heard? Okay. Anyway, what if they're a child? Okay. I mean, there's different things to, to ponder. I think the hardening will happen, and they will not, those that rejected the gospel before the rapture will not accept the gospel after the rapture. But, but there will be people saved after the rapture. And so the first guy saved after the rapture, what I'm trying to say is, the first guy that gets saved after, whether he's a Jew or a Gentile, probably a Jew, I think 144,000 Jews are going to get saved very quickly after the rapture. But the point being, he's going to get saved and he's going to remain a Jew. Or if he's a Gentile, he's going to remain a Gentile. He will receive eternal life. His sins will be forgiven. Because it won't be a kafar atonement and a passing over for a future completed work. He's still saved on the basis of a past completed work. So his sins are removed. He has eternal life. He is redeemed. His human spirit is made alive. But he's not going to be indwelled with God and the Holy Spirit. He's not going to be baptized into union with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He is not in Christ. He is not bride of Christ. He's not a member of the royal family of God. The royal family of God is already in the air, already en route to the third heaven. All right? 
the first person that gets saved and everybody else that gets saved after that person in the tribulation are Old Testament saints in the sense that they are not bride of Christ. They are believing Jews or they are believing Gentiles. And as I say, they don't have the church age package. They don't have the permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit. They don't have a spiritual gift. All right? They don't have any pastors. No deacons. No local churches. Okay? Although there's plenty of church buildings that will still be around. There will be plenty of nominal pastors still around. In fact, uh, the, the Roman church will, will seize a global dominance very quickly once the truly regenerate are gone. Okay? Because the woman rides the beast. We know how that works. So, <clears throat> O righteous Father, look at how this concludes. I in them and you in me. At the end of John 17, we have this wonderful thing. <clears throat> 22 through uh, 26, the end of the chapter here. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. The bride of Christ is a unity. That's why the, the, the idea of a partial rapture is ridiculous. Um. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Now, how did the Father demonstrate the love for the Son? How does the Father demonstrate his love for the bride? Okay. The Son, he welcomed him into heaven and seated him in his right hand. What about the bride? He's going to welcome us into heaven. The Son will present us to the Father. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. And that's a vision we're not, gonna, we're not waiting for the rapture to have someday. It's a vision we have now. We behold him now. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. This is what we must teach to make a disciple. We teach abiding in Christ. We teach abiding in love. We teach bearing fruit. We teach prayer. We teach the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We teach the, the, the foot washing of, of confession. We teach rapture. Basically everything from John 13 through 17. If you cover those verses, if you cover those chapters... To a brand new believer, you've got them on a solid ground to be disciples for the rest of their life. Teaching them to observe all that I command you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The imperative has a closing encouragement. The personal presence of Jesus Christ is a reality for this age. It's not a reality for the tribulation. Point E. The imperative has a closing encouragement. The personal presence of Jesus Christ is a reality for this age. The idea of completion, consummation. I am with you to the consummation of the age. I am with you until the age is consummated. Okay? We understand consummation, right? Sperm hits egg. New life. Consummation. Consummation. This age will have a consummation. You know, the bride has never been together at one time. Most of the bride is dead. <laughs> Most of the bride has departed planet Earth. 19 centuries of the bride are gone. Most of the 20th century is gone. What remains on this Earth is a mere uh, tithe, a fraction of who's already in heaven. The bulk of the bride's already there. But it's waiting on consummation. We're still the virgin espoused. Okay? It's waiting a consummation. Do we stay virgin forever? Are we finally going to be married to our Lord? Think about it. <laughs> okay? I, mean, I realize the Roman church wants to keep Mary a virgin forever, but that's not doctrinal. It's not biblical. 
called the consummation of the age. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. It's an expression that was found in Matthew 13. It's an expression that's found in Matthew 24. It's an expression that's found here in Matthew 28. It's an expression that's found in Hebrews 9.26, but I'm out of time. So um, we'll come back to this, and then we will move to point four, the great The great C. It's not commission. Okay? All right. We'll move on to point four next week. After we talk about consummation, uh, just a real short point. Shouldn't take us too much time. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the consummation of the age. Then we'll move on to, Matthew, to Luke 24. And we'll see the follow-up message. And by then, they're back in Jerusalem. By then, they're no longer on the Galilean mountaintop. They have returned to Jerusalem because that's where he's going to ascend. He's going to ascend from the Mount of Olives. And he has one final doctrinal Bible class for them after the Great Commission before the Ascension. And that uh, we'll get to next week. Father, thank you for your faithfulness for this time together, for all your mercy, love, and grace. I pray, Father, you would impress upon us the two things necessary to make disciples and uh, so that, Father, we can be effective in uh, fulfilling the disciple-maker imperative. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.